Well, good morning, folks. What a place this is. The energy and the excitement and all the sort of programs we have. When I heard the breaking news, somebody go yay. There were two there. No. Breaking news, ladies, were you there? Was it good? Was it okay? Do it again? Not bother. All right. Okay. Breaking news I heard was great. My wife didn't get back till midnight. I don't know why that was, but something was breaking. My temper, I think. But anyway. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we want to say thank you to you uh, for your presence here. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word, Lord God, because it break, bo breaks bondages. Your word is truth. It sets captives free. The truth shall set, shall set you free. And Lord, I want to say thank you for this word, Lord, and I ask that it will go forth and it will accomplish everything that you have in mind for it. So presence yourself with us now and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is one of those words that actually I, uh, this, this talk was not something I was planning to do. It was just that as I prayed this week and as I was preparing for the weekend, I just kept having this story out of Acts chapter 8 come to mind. And it's one of those ones that happens from time to time when, you know, we pray, we, we talk, we discuss about where we're going to take the teaching, what God's saying to us. But every once in a blue moon, it's as if, there's a little course correction. And like the Lord says, I want you to speak on this. And so I'm going to be speaking on a passage which is commonly called Philip and the Ethiopian. Really, uh, even at this stage, and I'm, I'm fascinated, I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen. But, but at this stage, I'm not entirely sure what God has in mind for it. I just know that I've got to preach it. So for somebody here, or maybe some bodies here, this is going to be a significant word. This is going to be meaningful to you, and this is going to impact you. And you will look back on this, this word, which for some reason touched you deeply. There are various words that I've heard over the years that have been like that. I remember from 35, 30 odd years ago, a sermon which was preached to about seven people, including me, in a little place called the, the Re Revival Center in North Allerton, a little tin hut, sort of, you know, kind of mission church down by the railway tracks. And it was called the Revival Center. And I remember a word there called the Mercy Seat. And it was the word I needed to hear. And I remember the pastor at that time saying, this was not the word I was going to preach, but God's laid it on my heart to preach it. And he did that. He was obedient. And it had a profound impact. I can remember it now. I could even tell you it now. And so this talk, I pray and trust and have faith, is going to be meaningful to one or the other of you. So get ready. And actually, you know what? At the end of this, I think this is right. I'm going to do what what we commonly call an altar call. I'm going to invite you to get out of your seats just to respond to that. And there may be just one, there may be none, there may be one, there may be 11 T. I don't know, it doesn't matter. I'm just trying to do something which I feel is, is being obedient. So if you've got a Bible with you and uh, would like to turn to Acts chapter 8, and I'm going to read this in sort of three sections as it were, but beginning at verse 26... And, uh, and then we will just see what comes out of this. It'll come up on the screens as well if, uh, if you haven't brought a Bible. But anyway, this is a fascinating story, a lovely story really. And it begins, as I said, in verse 26 of chapter 8. Now, an angel of the Lord begins with an angel. <laughs> an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kendake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of the prophet Isaiah. We'll pause there. A couple of little bit of background things. This guy, Philip, is not one of the apostles. He's one of the deacons. Those of you who know your Bible just a little bit, and great job, by the way, Dennis and Mark, for that overview of the, the Bible, and Linda as well. I hear it was absolutely awesome. So this, who knows, may make a bit more sense to you now than it would have done three weeks ago. But in Acts chapter 7, the apostles appoint seven deacons to, to, to really run their feed project. And, and all of these guys, all of these guys turn out to be absolutely awesome in, all, in various ways. But Philip is one of those. And it turns out that Philip is an evangelist. He has this heart to convey the truth of God. And not just any old truth or any aspect of theology, but specifically, he has a heart to teach about the salvation that God offers us through Jesus Christ. So Philip the deacon, the evangelist, that's the guy we're talking about here. And this angel of the Lord appears to him and says, tells him to go to this kind of lonely desert road. And so he sets out, he goes there. And this, this actually, there is a subplot going on here, which, which is worth pausing just for a moment so that you grasp it and you understand it. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel of Acts. They're two sort of, you know, two bookends of a story. It's unfortunate to some degree that the gospel of John got sandwiched in the middle because actually it would have been quite good if the two things ran on. And Luke is a doctor. He has this kind of scientific, this rational, this logical approach. And he is writing to someone called Theophilus, who he is trying, and he is giving an account. He's gathering all the facts. He presents them as the facts of the gospel. He wants to tell the, the narrative story, but he's presenting the facts. But one of the things that Luke is at pains to do at this point of the story is to, is to illustrate, to demonstrate, if you like, that the mandate that Jesus gave his disciples to go to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, then out to Samaria, the sort of next region, the next circle of influence, if you like, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, he is trying to say to Theophilus, this is happening. What Jesus said would happen is happening. And so this story that that out of many stories, I dare say, that Luke has chosen, is trying to make that point that this gospel, this good news about Jesus, is like wildfire. It's catching fire. It's going. It's doing exactly what God said. Yes, the church is being obedient in its mission to make disciples and to baptize them. There it is, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But something is happening here. And in fact, in, in chapter 8... We see that, that very process taking place. You know, Luke has very deliberately written it. So it begins in Jerusalem, and then following some, some really serious opposition, the good news is taken outside of Jerusalem by the disciples, the followers of Jesus, into Samaria. And now we have this story about the Ethiopian. Now, the significance of that, and there is significance here, is that Ethiopia, as it was then, ran from 
southern Sudan, bypassing, well, really through to Khartoum. And the significance of it was, was it was the absolute nether regions to the Roman world. It was, it was an, actually an area of great interest to them. They were fascinated by these tall, majestic, black Ethiopians. There was, it was a parallel sort of culture, and it was a very highly developed, very highly cultured, very highly sophisticated. And the Roman culture looked to it with a certain amount of admiration. But it was at the very edge of the world. And what, what Luke is trying to say to Theophilus, this high-born Gentile who he's hoping is going to be great, influence and of great benefit to the gospel, he's saying, look, the, the gospel is already going to the very ends of the earth. It's like wildfire. And so that's the, that's the significance. That's why Luke, we believe, chose that story as opposed to another story, to demonstrate that here we have an Ethiopian, you know, who has come to worship and, as we will see in a few moments, is impacted by the gospel of Jesus. Now, those of you who have been followers of Jesus for a little while will, will know that actually tradition has it that following this Ethiopian's conversion, who we, we will read about in just a moment, he went on and he founded the Ethiopian church. It's, uh, we, we, we don't hear so much about the Ethiopian church today, although, to be honest with you, it is the largest of the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox churches, very, very large. But we do hear about Coptic Christians who are being persecuted very heavily in Egypt at the moment. And the Coptic church is part of this thing. And it is believed, tradition has it, that this Ethiopian official, having been soundly saved by this encounter with the Lord Jesus through, through, the Philip, through Philip the Evangelist, went back and founded the Christian church in, it, it, right on the very rim of the world. After that, you, you fell off the edge of the world or something, and there were dragons and monsters or something. So that's what's going on here. This is a very exciting, energized, dynamic passage where Luke is saying to Theophilus, who he's written this for, it's happening, dude. Get with the program. Okay? All not enthusiastically good. Great, it was worth it. All right. So we have here then this encounter, and uh, we'll pick up the next little bit of the reading. Thank you, Matt. We'll re we will read... Uh, uh, Acts chapter 29 to 35, take the story on a little bit here. So it says here, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now this is not one of those chariots that, that we see in the movies. This was probably a kind of a, a cart, but with a, uh, a, a great canopy on it. It was the kind of thing that dignitaries it went on, rode in. So, there's this, so that's the picture. It's kind of like a very elaborate cart, pre-coaches, but not one of these kind of two-seater sports version chariots, all right? Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then, people, then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I? the Ethiopian said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and, stay and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a lamb, like, like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, he, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth." The eunuch asked Philip, saying, 
tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. A couple of little things here. One of the things that's important to Luke, another subtext here is that it's not just about reading Scripture. It's not just about going to Jerusalem. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about understanding This is a subplot for Luke. He's saying, you've got to understand what it is you're doing. That's why things like Essential and Dennis and Mark's and Linda's class and and the other classes are so important. Luke wants his readers to understand the import and uh, what's going on here. So this Ethiopian says to Philip, you know, I, I don't understand. How can I understand unless somebody explain it to me? The passage itself, many of you will recognize, is from Isaiah 53. And there is something significant about that, again, with this theme of the gospel being like wildfire going out through the ends of the earth. In this passage, those of you who know it, and it's quite a well-known passage amongst you know, believers, it's about the, what we call the suffering servant. It's a prophetic word preached by Isaiah, and as you read through it, it's uncanny how it, how it applies to Jesus. It talks about him being pierced, about his clothes being divided up for, you know, by lots. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. But one of those things that comes out in this passage is that this, this suffering servant, this sheep, this lamb of God is silent. And three times in this passage it talks about he did not open his mouth. So Jesus went to the cross dying for your sins and mine, not complaining, not saying a word, not putting up any defense, not trying to resist. He went silent. But the, the kind of juxtaposition is this, is that now the witnesses, witness, are not silent. Jesus was silent that we might have our sins forgiven and live, and now we speak out. Jesus said, you will go to the ends of the earth and you will be my witnesses. Everybody say that. You will be my witnesses. We are the ones that do not hold silent. We are the ones that do not close our mouth. We are the ones that speak out. We are the ones that do whatever we can to make Christ known. And then we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Something else here which I absolutely love and have to sort of just explain to you and so that you might have understanding. I'm trying to do what, Paul, what Luke did, give you understanding, not just read a story. And uh, it says here, you know, the eunuch said to uh, Philip, he said, tell me please who is this prophet talking about himself or, or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now, for some of you, this is going to be a bit challenging, but just take one minute, turn to your neighbor, uh, and, and, and in, in like 20 seconds, explain to one another what the good news about Jesus is. Turn to one another and just do that now. What is the good news about Jesus? Another 20 seconds and then we move on. (coughs) Okay, well done. 
Lots of chatter there. I love that. Lots of chatter. That's great. Not too many people going, duh, you know. <laughs> great. Let's just recalibrate. I, I actually think that this, for my mind, when I was studying this in the light of what I said in my introductory remarks, I thought maybe this is what Jesus wants to do. But I'm not going to tell you what Jesus is going to do or the Holy Spirit's going to apply to your heart. This will be what God wants it to be for you. But, but actually, the gospel we so often share and preach and teach in the Western world in the 21st century is a few clicks off what the gospel was in the Old Testament. Uh, sorry. The Old Testament, in the New Testament. So let's just uh, eavesdrop, as it were, on Paul speaking to the Corinthian church about the good news of Jesus. He summarizes what the good news is. And I'm sure that everything you shared with one another is part of the gospel, and God bless you, and glory, hallelujah, and well done, well done. But let's just use this as a template to lay over what we said to one another because Paul, when he is sharing the gospel, he says to the Corinthian church, this is of first importance. Whatever else you might have in mind, whatever else you may think, and I'm sure it's all true and it's in the book, but Paul very succinctly gives us this outline of the gospel and he says, he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance. This is the very nub. This is the thing we need to grasp. And if the church of Jesus Christ, not this, just this church, but all churches in the 21st century, doesn't matter how we do church, whether it's high church, low church, or in between, whether it has hymns or whether it has you know, contemporary music, the very core of the message has to be that the message as, as Paul outlines here, so I believe. And he says to the Corinthians church, I think it's come on the screen, thank you. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried when he was raised on the third day, sorry, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one uh, abnormally born. Lots of people have spent time talking about the abnormally born thing. I have a question for you. What appears to be the major emphasis in Paul's gospel there? Just talk to one another. Just run your eye over that. Just put that. Can you just bring that back a bit, uh, please, um, Mark? Thank you, uh, Matt. Look at that. What is the major emphasis? What does Paul spend time talking about in this, this crucial, crucial uh, outline of the gospel? You got it. I'm hearing it. The resurrection. It's good news that our shame has been buried. We sung it this morning. It's good news that our sins have been forgiven because without that happening, we can have no relationship with God the Father. If you have not asked God to forgive your sins, if you have not repented, if, you have, if you've just thought it could be all brushed over and we'll begin afresh today, if you think you can kind of jump or dodge all that, you are sadly and dangerously mistaken. You face hell unless your sins are forgiven. Strong words, but true. 
But in the gospel of the early church, it was the resurrection that energized and fired them up. The resurrection, that was what made them go, whoa! And as Paul is at pains to outline here, many people saw the risen Jesus. They saw that, that mortal wound in his side that would have felled an ox. They saw the scarred body, the, the whip marks on his back, the, the, the imprint on his brow of that crown of thorns. They saw those vicious six-inch Roman nail holes, in, not through his hand, through his wrist there, went through the carpal nerve. It was agony. They saw the impression they put the nail through their ankles, again, where there's a junction of nerves. It was excruciating. They saw the risen Christ sporting as if a, mess, a medal, all those things. And that left a profound impression on them. They did not fear being thrown into a Roman arena as a result of that. They did not fear the lions. They did not fear persecution. They went from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And they loved baptism. Because in the baptism... Yes, there was the going down and the drowning, as, as, as Rich and Kev said when they were, were speaking of this, the going down and you know, washing away the sins, and we, we, I think we got that one down. But what they loved about baptism was the rising again with Christ. Because that's what they wanted. That was what they craved. That's what they were excited about. That's what motivated them. That's what turned mice into men. The message of the resurrection. One more verse of scripture just to look at and then we'll wind up the story. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 34. 3 to 4 rather. Where in another teaching, Paul puts it this way. He says, do you know? Do you not understand? Have you not grasped it yet? That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Yeah, got that one down. Thank you, Paul. And we were therefore buried with him, going into the tomb, through baptism, into his death. Our spirits are melding with Jesus at that moment. But then, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is the gospel. Not just sins forgiven, not just relationship with the Father, not just healing for our bodies and help for our souls. It's that we were raised from the dead in Christ. And that's why they loved baptism. That's why they were, they were anxious. They, 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 they wanted to be baptized yesterday because they wanted to push through all the sin and the shame and all the rest of it and get that behind because they wanted to step out into the resurrected life of Jesus. And the church of Jesus Christ in the Western world has played this down. Baptism is now an option if you feel like it sometime later, if it's not too much trouble, if you can fit it in your diary, blah, 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 blah. We've lost it. And the reason we've let it go is because we have not been impacted or allowed the Holy Spirit to impact us afresh with the power of the resurrection. It's not what we were, folks. It's about what we are becoming 
And that's why the, the most important part of the, re- of the baptism is the raising up to new life. That's what the gospel is about. God's eternity living forward, his kingdom breaking into us now and carrying through death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It has been swallowed up in victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. So we go back to our Ethiopian and Philip having their conversation. So Philip explains not the 21st century gospel. Oh, you need a hug or this, whatever. You know, it's you will. You need to repent of your sins. You need to be washed clean. But that's only half of it. That is not even the most of it. You need to be raised up with Christ. And the Ethiopian got it. He understood. I love the commentary then. Verse uh, 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord said, suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. He went away rejoicing because he knew that he had eternal life. He knew that the resurrection had been, had been melded into his very spirit at that point. He knew that he would not die the eternal death. He knew he would live again. And when he got back to Ethiopia, it had changed. they saw a different chancellor of the exchequer. Queen Kandaki knew that something had happened to him. Probably thought it was in Jerusalem, but he said, no, no. Jerusalem was good. I got a lovely souvenir piece of scripture. That was the kind of souvenir you bought. He was reading a souvenir. But no, I met a man who told me the good news about Jesus on the lonely desert road coming down to Gaza. That was when I met with Jesus, and that was what has changed me. And that's why I want to start a church here, Queen Kandaki, a church of black Ethiopians that honors the name of Christ. And friends, is still going strong today. This is an extraordinary thing. This is a wonderful message. I was struck, as I said last time I preached, in Kev's message about even in the early church, it was necessary for the Apostle Paul to say to the church, get baptized, what are you waiting for? I don't know whether that's what Jesus wants to say to you this morning. What are you waiting for? What's to stop you being baptized? My own story of baptism, which some of you know, but I don't think I've told it for a long time. Yes, you know, I was baptized as as a child. I mentioned that recently. But I was in America getting trained to start this thing with my dear family. And one of my duties as a pastor in the Anaheim Vineyard was to baptize people. We did probably 20 or 30 at a time. Not as many as we're planning to do next weekend. But we would do 20, 30 at a time. And it being California, we would go and have a barbecue in someone's house and baptize them in the pool. How cool is that? 
And so after we'd eaten our burgers and all these other things, there came that point, we'd do a little bit of worship, somebody play the acoustic guitar beside the pool, and then I'd get down into the pool, and maybe one or two other f- friends would come and help, and we would start baptizing people. And I baptized, and I baptized, and I baptized, until my fingers went wrinkly. And I was an ordained Anglican priest. I was now a pastor in the Vineyard Church. John Wimber himself has said to me, do you want to become a pastor in the Vineyard Church? And we said, yes, please. And I'm baptizing these people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And suddenly, as one came out of the water, there was a deep longing inside of me. I wanted to be baptized. It was no longer enough for me that my mom and dad, God bless them, not even believers, but just doing what was the right thing to do, took me along to some sort of cold, freezing church in Wimbledon and dunked me in the water, which made me scream. It wasn't enough, because the scriptures don't say dunk your babies. The scripture says repent and And suddenly that scripture in the Californian sun seemed to be blazed across my forehead and I understood it. I knew it, I'd read it, I'd teached it, I've taught it, I'd baptized people, I'd been through ordination, seven years of training, everything else, done high masses in cathedrals and suddenly I see written in fire, repent and be baptized. There is an order for a reason. You cannot raise from the dead until you've repented. And I wanted to do what Jesus wanted me to do. And so I turned to Todd Hunter, who was my sort of mentor and, and this sort of second in command. And I said, Todd, will you baptize me? And he looked, he looked startled. I mean, I'd just done all these other people. <laughs> and he said, actually, he said, let's talk about it. And so I wasn't baptized in that moment. But the following month, when we did another pool baptized, he was delighted to baptize me because I told him, I spoke to him, and he knew that I had understanding that suddenly it wasn't enough that my dear parents had done what they thought was right and sprinkled me. I needed to repent and be baptized. I'd love to say to you that when I... When I was baptized in the California sun that the heavens were torn open and I saw angels. No, it was, it was quite a matter of fact. And in fact, in the end, another friend, Eddie Espinosa, baptized me. Not, not Todd. He was, you know, he was in, in the same pool, but another part of the pool. But I knew that as I, as I plunged beneath the, beneath the water and I saw that water come over me, as I went away from the light, so it seemed, suddenly I came up. And I burst through into California sunshine knowing that I was going to be raised with Christ. Folks, if you haven't got a story or a testimony about the resurrection for Jesus, I would put it to you most humbly, but as best I can, that you may need to get baptized. It's an act of obedience, as Kev taught. It's an act of renewal. And it's something that the church of Jesus Christ is commanded to teach. Go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the the Holy Spirit. And of Matthew's gospel. I'm going to pray. Well, I don't know which part of this you want to use.
But I believe, Lord God, it was more than just to stir up the saints. I believe that for some people here, this is significant. This is significant. This is why you got me to do it. And I pray that nobody here will leave this place having not made some step in order to embrace the word that you've, you've given me today. Lord, this is a gospel of grace. It's not about law. It's not about doing the right thing. It is a gospel of grace. But there are certain things that should be done because they honor you.